Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Thaisi Books, news and views about Thaisi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Serena Prabasi in our Thaisi Lit Biz segment. She's an activist, coffee shop founder, and writer of the memoir, The Coffee House Resistance, Bringing Hope in Desperate Times. We also have the literary translator, Haider Shabazz, sharing some important works from Lahore, Pakistan, in the Desi Boost segment. Haider's latest translation is a novel by Mirza Athar Beg, titled Hassan's State of Affairs. I'd also like to share a bit about um, a collaboration project between the Global Literature in Libraries Initiative and Desi Books. Throughout the month of December, I will be sharing brief interviews with South Asian literary translators about one of their favorite translated works, translated by them. I'll include the links in the episode transcript on the website. And if you're connected on Twitter or Instagram, details will be shared there daily too. In the introductory post on December the 1st, I talked about the need to spotlight South Asian literature in translation. Please please feel free to uh, share or recommend your own favorite works in translation and tag the Desi Books social media accounts. My hope is that In 2021, we can invite some of these translators for a virtual Desi Books in Translation book club, which I've mentioned before. So please do join in. These books aren't simply stories. They're historical, cultural, and literary artifacts. And, if we're open to it, each one of them can reveal to us new wisdom about our world, and indeed, our own selves. Now please sit back and enjoy the usual episode segments. In notable new books, we'll be covering a few books that I missed earlier in the year as well. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash they see dash books dash 2020. This is a US based site. So my apologies to non US listeners, but you can still see the list of all the books that have come out in 2020 and been mentioned on the podcast. I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the They See Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. And you can always send an email to hellotheysebooks at gmail.com. The social media links will also be in the transcript and they're always on the website. Hands for Language by Uma Menon came out in August. It's a poetry collection that takes readers on a journey through the eyes 
of a teenage girl of color living in America. It explores themes of transnationalism, migration, language, family, and culture, and expands the dialogue around literary representation. A Terrible Thing by Geetha Raleigh was out in October. It's a short collection about goddesses and their elemental power, their vulnerability. The poems are as delicate and formidable as their protagonists, which include Draupadi, Bollywood's Nergis, Erzuli and Ocean, Kali and Anagule. The Voice of Sheila Chandra by Kazim Ali came out in October, and it's titled For the Influential Singer Who Was Left Almost Voiceless by a Terrible Syndrome. These poems bring sweet melodies and rhythms as the voices blend and become multitudinous. There's an honouring of not only survival, but of persistence. As this part, research-based, pensive collection contemplates what it takes to move forward when the unimaginable holds you back. The Girl and the Goddess, Stories and Poems of Divine Wisdom by Nikita Gill is a September book. It's a novel in verse exploring Hindu mythology and legend. It's also an intimate coming-of-age story told in linked poems. Here We Are by Arti Namdev Shahani came out in October. It's a memoir about an immigrant family's dream, American dream, the justice system that took it away, and the daughter who fought to get it back. And this is from the NPR correspondent Arti Namdev Shahani. The Nine Lives of Pakistan Dispatches from a Precarious State by Declan Walsh, and this was out in November. He is the New York Times international correspondent. There is, this is, I should say, his portrait of Pakistan over a tumultuous decade through the dramatic lives of nine fascinating individuals. Enter the Naval for the Love of Creative Nonfiction by Anjali Roy came out in September. It's a chapbook of creative nonfiction that includes, among other things, Hawaiian and Hindu origin stories rooted in the navel that connect us to the divine, the role of the navel in and after human birth, a story of the author's own teenage navel piercing, the plastic surgery that removed her mother's navel, and more. Dancing in the Mosque, an Afghan mother's letter to her son. By Homera Kaderi, this is out in December. It's a memoir about a mother's unimaginable choice in the face of oppression and abuse in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. It's a letter to the son she was forced to leave behind. Dr. Kaderi has written several books and won awards in Afghanistan and Iran, and this is her first book in English. 
A Will to Kill by R.V. Raman is out in December. An Agatha, Agatha Christie, I should say, style, murder and crime mystery set in modern-day India. And the first of a series featuring private investigator Harith Atreya. It's got everything. The haunted manor, estranged relatives, a dying patriarch and more. The Family Tree by Cyrish Hussain is a February novel that came out in the UK and was shortlisted for the 2020 Costa First Novel Award. It's a multi-generational story of a British Muslim family. And the back blurb describes it as full of love, laughter and resilience, as well as all the faults, mistakes and stubborn loyalties which make us human. Zigzags by Kamala Puligandla, and I apologize if I got the pronunciation wrong there, came out in October. It's a debut novel about parties, friendships, finding yourself, writing, and relationships. Take It Back by Kia Abdullah came out in December in the US. It's already been out in the UK. It's a courtroom thriller focusing on the British Muslim community, and it deals with themes of family, belonging, immigration, sexual crimes, and more. In today's They See Litbis segment, we have Serena Prabasi. Serena has lived the life of a global nomad and is a relatively new American. She was born in the Netherlands to Nepali parents and raised in India, China and Nepal. She spent her formative years in the United States and Ethiopia. Her professional career as a leader in international development, working on global health, education water and sanitation, spans over 25 years. In 2011, she moved from Addis Ababa to New York City and started Bunny Coffee with her husband. Their small business soon became a hub for community conversation and action, especially after the uh, 2016 presidential elections. Her father, a retired UN official, uh, Satish Prabhasi, was also on the podcast on episode 17 in the Desi Books, uh, Desi Boost, I apologize, segment. In her memoir, The Coffee House Resistance, Bringing Hope in Desperate Times, Serena writes about her personal journey across the globe, starting her coffee shop, and her activism uh, for a fairer, more equitable society. This is a beautifully written memoir that came out in 2019 and deserves more attention. In a year when uh, independent community-based businesses like hers are dealing with new kinds of challenges, I spoke with Serena about her writing publishing a debut book later in life, starting her business, 
with her husband, her activism work, and what happens next. On a personal note, let me just say how much this book enriched my own worldview about many aspects. Reading it during this pandemic year made me think deeper about my own literary activism, which is definitely not at the level of what Serena is doing politically. And her meditations on coffee rituals and the role of coffee houses in our communities for centuries are profound. This is a lot more than an immigrant memoir about self and personal identity. This is about how we can make change happen from right where we sit with the power of our communities. How we can put some energy, positive energy, out into the world versus taking negative energy from it. And how we can assimilate into other cultures while still upholding and respecting our own. Toward the end of the recording, we had a bit of a broadband connection issue. So um, if it sounds like we talked over each other a couple of times, we didn't really. There was some weird time lag thing uh, with the podcast app. So my apologies for that. And now here's Serena Prabasi. Hi, Serena. Thank you so much for joining us on the Desi Books podcast. And I'm very excited to discuss with you lots of things today. Um, there's obviously, you know, your, the coffee house, which Bunny uh, in New York, but also, you know, your memoir that came out last year. And um, it talks about not just um, the coffee house and how that came together, but also how you know, you moved to the U.S. as an immigrant after having lived in a lot of different countries and then started the business and how it became, you know, this, this huge movement, really, uh, the coffee house resistance. So let's start um, with actually we'll start at the very beginning and let's talk about how you came to the U.S. You've lived in a lot of different countries. You've written in the book about the challenges of coming to the U.S., some of the visa issues, the journey that you and your husband had to starting the coffee business. And there are both joyful anecdotes as well as some painful ones. So my, my first question, just in, uh, kind of to ease us into this, is as you were writing about these experiences for, in the memoir, did you have any sort of new aha moment? Like, did something click for you during the writing that perhaps hadn't clicked before until you put it down in words? Yeah, thank you so much um, for having me on and uh, for the opportunity to talk about uh, the coffee house resistance. Um, at, you know, my book really... Um, in some ways, it's an accidental book. <laughs> I started writing it uh, in little bits and pieces while I was actually helping my father with his memoir. And there are, um, when you asked me that question, there was one part that immediately came to my mind. 
um, and it was one of those niggling things. It's like a little memory that had been in the back of my head. And until I wrote that vignette down, I didn't realize how much it had bothered me over the years. And, and also this few minute interaction um, that I still remembered it so well. And that it's, uh, it's set um, actually in the scene of um, right before we open our first coffee house in New York. And uh, it's a little interaction that happens in the neighborhood. And uh, that, that's what comes to mind. But definitely, you know, as I was writing the book, there, there's a certain distance, I think, um, of time and space as well as the writing and revising process that does give you different insights into your own experience. Um, moments that you felt maybe deeply in the, in, as you were experiencing them, but you, you get to re-experience them in a slightly different way um, as you mm -hmm. review these, these moments. Right, and I felt I felt kind of, and the re I asked this question for a very specific reason because I felt that as I was reading some of the incidents, I felt like you were giving us that epiphany, mm. almost fresh, almost fresh, almost as if it was coming to you, you know, as you were describing it. So I, that's why it, it struck me on a couple of incidents like that, um, and and I you know I don't want to give too much away because I want people to read the book, but I do remember as I, as I'm going through, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. I wonder whether that was something that had already come to mind before you wrote it down, or whether that came through the writing process itself. And so it's good to hear that because um, you certainly brought it across on the page then. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so, you know, uh, I, and then in, in your book, you've also described, you know, your journey, you've, you've had quite a few careers, right? I mean, you're, you're an activist and coffeehouse founder now, but you've also been a former CEO, you've worked in international development, um, you're obviously a writer now, and, and of course, you know, we have all our other identities, mother, daughter, wife. And, and I don't like asking people which of these is the most important because I think we're all capable of wearing multiple hats in our lives, right? But, but I must ask you, when did you decide you wanted to write the book? And you mentioned just now about how you were helping your father, who, who we featured on the podcast before, uh, and you were, met, you were helping him with his memoir. And so, but when, what was the moment when you said, okay, I'm going to have to write this book too? Yeah, you know, I think that was for me one of those aha moments that you referenced. Um, I've always loved reading, writing books. Some of my earliest childhood memories of joy are being in a bookstore. And um, the classes I remember most vividly in college were, you know, post colonial literature. I have always had this love, but I never thought that it was practical for me to pursue that as a career. So um, it's only recently that I, as I look back on my life, that I can actually together and say, wow, it was so clear all along that I had this great love and I didn't think that it was an option for me. Uh, so I, you know, I, I continue to read and love books, but I, and I continue to write privately, um, but it's only, it was only in uh, 2016, 17 that I really started writing more seriously and 
sort of stumbled across it again uh, as the process of helping my dad. And I think that there's something very telling in that too, because my mother and I had been sort of nagging my dad for years about writing a book. And when he was ready, um, I was there to help him with it. And it, uh, we went off on this writing re retreat and it was a gift to him, but it somehow also turned out to be a gift to myself. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. I love the fact that you both had this journey together and you were on a writing retreat. Um, and and I, it totally resonates what you said about it was, you know, writing as a career option or, or a vocation, you know, what you just said, that it wasn't an option. I think a lot of us who come from South Asian cultures, I think a lot of us have had that, right? And so we end up turning to it later in life when we think we can. Yeah when we think we've earned it, right? <laughs> yes. And we feel like, okay, now I've earned it. You know? <laughs> so I think that's, uh, for me, that had to, I had to earn it. You know, I felt like I had to earn it. I couldn't just, yeah. So, hmm. okay. So let me ask you then about the coffee house. One of the lines in the book that I loved a lot, you know, you said um, art, performance and satire, great ideas, creative solutions and political movements are born in coffee houses. And of course, there's a long, long, rich tradition over centuries of coffee houses, whether we talk about, you know, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's in South Asia, whether it's even in, um, you know, Europe. Um, but yeah, coffee houses have been uh, hubs for a lot of communal activity for centuries. And in, in your case, your coffee house, Bunny, has been a hub for activism since, I guess, since the 2016 election or before? Yes. Right? And, and you know, I've always said that for immigrants, the personal is always political. Mm -hmm. So I can totally see why your workplace or your business is a place for activism and politics. It is, it, it has to be. But talk to us a bit about just, you know, tell, tell our listeners who may not have read your book, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you, I mean, I, 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 I get the part about how you, you and your husband decided on the coffee house business, but how you decided, you know, that it would become this hub for activism. Yeah, you know, I think, I don't know that we ever decided. <laughs> it, it sort of happened. And it happened in a way because of what was happening in the country, because of uh, what was happening in our neighborhood. Partly we were guided also by, um, so when we started the business, we were really guided by this, the idea of a gathering place, a communal place. Mm -hmm. And so whatever was on people's mind in the neighborhood sort of ended up coming into the coffee house. And whether that was, you know, something happening at the local school or the fact that we needed speed bumps on the road, like from very uh, local micro issues um, to after the 2016 election, this sort of outpouring of confusion in the beginning, confusion and grief at just processing and then a collective feeling like, well, what are we going to do about this? And um, I remember, I don't remember exactly what event it was, but I remember feeling like there was a threshold where where if we took the steps forward, then we were um, clearly aligning the business with a this sort of more activist agenda. And 
were we ready for that? And as you know, as, as immigrants and as people of color, there are also risks associated with that. Even though we live in New York City and maybe our risks are different than if we lived in other parts of the country, there are risks associated when you take the, that step. And, and that I remember we really thought through and said, you know what, this is it, we're ready for this. And so it was partly guided by um, the community around us. It was partly guided by our own values and uh, feeling at that point. And um, I write in the book also about the fact that I was a new citizen. And so it was also guided mm. uh, in my case from this personal sense of what's the responsibility of being a citizen of any country. And I left my own country, Nepal, um, before the year I left the country was the first year we were allowed to vote. So there wasn't that uh, active sense of citizenship and engagement in civic and political activities. And then I had a whole career of traveling around and being nomadic pretty much. Um, and so in a way, this was the first time in my life that I had the opportunity to engage politically and have a voice politically. And I, I took that really seriously. I felt like that was, um, that was something that it had a, a level of importance to me, um, having never had that opportunity before. So all of those things kind of coincided to make um, what it en ended up being a coffee shop that became more of this activist coffee house that um, then I was really pleased as I was researching for the book and learning more, I was really pleased to link our little, you know, endeavor here to this longer history that you reference, and that we we mm -hmm. were another iteration, another expression of this very long history of coffee houses as being places where barriers are broken, where people of different classes and backgrounds can gather, um, and where where there can be sort of challenge and debate, and and the arts were a really important part of that too. Right. And I loved, yeah, you know, you, you go into that history a little bit in the book too. And I, I loved that, um, that, you know, you were giving us this background and showing how it, it was this long tradition. And, and in, additionally, you also describe, wow, I, I got to tell you that the coffee descriptions, I mean, I was literally thirsting. After. <laughs> I was like, I have to drink some coffee. Because I mean, when you're talking about the ritual, you're talking about coffee as ritual, about Ethiopian coffee ritual in particular. Well, talk talk to us. How I mean, and you mentioned you. In fact, you you and your husband got together over coffee, right? So obviously, it's a big part of your life. But how is it enriched beyond beyond your business and being being such an important part of your life? But do you think that this whole coffee ritual tradition has it enriched other aspects of your life? Has it kind of informed and enriched other? aspects of your life as well? Yeah, you know, I, I think that for me, uh, coming from Nepal, uh, my the first time I went to Ethiopia is really when I discovered coffee. And I, I, I write about it. And mm -hmm. it, I found that it was coffee, but it was so rooted in a cultural tradition, in a, 
in a sense of hospitality in in daily life um and coffee was an entry point for me to get to know people colleagues um in Ethiopia and eventually uh the man who turned out to be my husband you know coffee was sort of always um creating these openings creating those spaces for conversation for getting to know uh better and the traditional ritual um involves you know people getting together over coffee neighbor whether they're neighbors whether they're um colleagues from the office whether they're family extended family members um and i often say you know it, the way i experienced it in ethiopia the the idea of saying i'm going to have coffee was just very weird you know it was always let's have coffee or shall mm-hmm. we have coffee and always in a in a collective or a, a we and that's kind of the ethos that we tried to bring into buni when we opened it and that's sort of i think for for elias obviously much more in few like it's he grew up in that culture and for me ethiopia has really become second home um so we tried to bring that and i think that did result in a very different experience where um you know obviously now with the pandemic things are very different but a big part of our identity became this gathering place and this place to come in and hang out so it was kind of the opposite of new york coffee which is coffee to go coffee in a hurry coffee because i need my morning caffeine it was really not that wasn't the idea <laughs> and uh it was the slow mm-hmm. coffee that we were more interested in uh and the the lulls in the conversation the taking the time to get to know you know honestly as immigrants as people moving into this neighborhood it really allowed it allowed us to get to know our new home uh in a different way too and to get to know people and and make a a social um setting or social connection between um mm-hmm. you know after having lived in in Addis Ababa and coming to to northern Manhattan so it really has played up you know there's the business side but but even the business side has been really uh inspired by this deeper deeper tradition of coffee yeah you know i think that's great that what you just mentioned which is how it allowed you both as immigrants in in a new place in a new country to just suddenly make that you know social connection with so many people in in the local community um I think that's rare. That's it's not easy to do. A lot of immigrants, you know, they're so lonely in their first few years and they're struggling to, you know, get settled into their jobs and everything. And here you are, you've just kind of created this whole community around a coffee shop. So I think that's pretty pretty impressive. Um one of the things that uh you know, you you there's an anecdote I'm I'm recalling that you had in there about how when you guys were working to start you know the, I mean, the, all, all the all the little hurdles along the way to getting <laughs> the first coffee shop or the second coffee shop up and running and there was one where you called your mom and in Kathmandu and then she's like oh i'll do some you know she she consults the astrologer <laughs> or something and then she says i'll do and that was such to me it was like a total indian thing because i i've been there with my family so um you know talk talk a little bit about how I don't know how you know you still have friends and family obviously back in yeah. Nepal right 
and how did they what what has been res- the response you know to are they getting a sense of you know now that your book is out as well are they getting a sense of what you do with your coffee shop and your business and your activism and what has been the response um perhaps from some of them yeah well i mean yes certainly people get a sense of it i mean nowadays also with so much connection over social media so they they can they can mm-hmm. see a lot of it as it's happening so they've sort of seen that journey mm-hmm. from you know posting pictures of oh we opened it was our first day to you know they've seen the evolution um in pictures and video and conversations i definitely don't get to nepal as often as i would like and um uh, being a small business owner is really not conducive to <laughs> to spending long periods of time right. away but but i have you know i i was in nepal last year actually um and uh I think, you know, it's also hard I think sometimes for people to connect um you know the various identities as you were saying. So, uh many people have known me as being this international development professional and NGO executive for many years and the the coffee house mm-hmm. and small business entrepreneur hat is a very different one right so people uh sometimes it can be a mm-hmm. bit confusing as well so are you doing this or are you doing that or uh but it's you know who mm-hmm. actually runs the business <laughs> um so it it does cause a little bit of confusion because they are they are um i guess traditionally kind of very separate occupations Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I wanted to I, I was asking about that because you know you've described a fair amount in the book about some of the patriarchal yes. norms when you were growing up and how frustrating it was and I that's so to me I I I felt some of that very personally because I also grew up in India and I I totally identified with some of what you were describing and then you know to your point just like you I was an immigrant to the west and I developed I had a career I didn't you know didn't just follow the social script or the social norm script and whenever I would go back and then that's why I was curious whenever I would go back I would deal with the same sort of confusion that you've described where people can't put you easily into the kind of box that they are used to yes. putting women into right yeah. so yeah that's interesting and so and so that um you know uh, brings me to two two questions related to you know one is related to given the pandemic year that we've been having and the fact that this is also an election year how did the coffee house and the community that you've built around the coffee house how did you all engage with this latest election what was possible what was not possible and how did you guys deal with it all it really it really changed um we had grown you know 2019 was a real stretch year like we grew a lot as buni and we had um by the end of 2019 we had a very robust sort of programming calendar events uh everything from like debate watch parties for the primaries to music to um panel discussions on healthcare and inequalities in healthcare you know like a really quite wide ranging um area of programming and you know i remember really clearly 
uh, the first event we canceled at the beginning of uh, 2020. And I, speaking to the, the one of the organizers and saying, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll reschedule it soon. <laughs> and I think back to how unprepared we were for the long haul. You know, I think we were sort of, everybody was uh, ready to hunker down for a short period of time. But this, the year that has, you know, now we're at middle of November. It's um, it, it. We were really not prepared, and for us as a as a business as well as a community space, we were not prepared. And so um, a lot of our activities were in person. And when I look at the photos, it sort of makes me cringe because these events are packed. We have so many people. Um, and I cannot imagine that actually happening for a very long time. So we did, you know, as a business, we really pivoted and we had to um, make very quick decisions for changes. And we're, you know, we're still here. We're, uh, it's not great, but we're still here. And, but as a, as a community, the community facing part of us, so some of it went online, although we didn't really put all of the events online, but we tried to be of help at what was a very difficult time in New York City. And we tried to be of service in what do we do? You know, we make great coffee. So we started doing these uh, coffee deliveries to hospitals and essential workers and um, our post offices, just, you know, somehow to keep going and to keep, mm. it gave us a sense of purpose. It was a tiny, tiny act uh, in the scheme of what was going on in New York, but it it uh, it did provide us something while the shops were all closed. Um, politically, you know, it, in terms of the activism, definitely we've supported uh, the efforts of others in terms of things like, you know, there are groups that are doing postcard writing or there were groups that were doing text banking and things like that. Um, most recently during the election, uh, we, we had early voting for the first time in New York this year. And um, so we, Buni was there serving coffee to people who were waiting in line to vote. We had very long lines. Um, and so just, you know, mm. I think that it has changed the type of engagement, but we're really hoping that to hold to hold that space for the gathering place when it is possible to gather again, uh, that we will still be here. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we look sort of opportunistically for for uh, places where we can be helpful. Mm. Yeah, no, that's why. I mean, I I know it's been tough for a lot of small businesses, but then you know when you've got a business that's built around community, around people coming together. It, it, I'm sure it's harder, but it sounds like you guys have been, like you said, you've pivoted as wherever you have been able to. And I, I mean, I think it's tremendous that you've been able to still get out there and do the work. And yeah, just more power to you. Thank you. Um, let me ask you about a sentence that, um, yeah, there's a sentence. Well, first of all, there's a lot about your daughters <laughs> in the book, which I love. I, as I loved, I loved when you had one of, I forget which one, but one of the daughters, um, 
she's made up a little <laughs> rhyme, a little ditty about Donald Trump. I thought that was tremendous. So I, I just, uh, I, I loved all the little bits, and I just thought these girls are going to grow up and just be such powerhouses. And and you know, you sit. There's a line in in your book that where you say, "I want my daughters to know that we still have choices in how we respond and how we resist." So talk a little bit about that. Talk about their journeys. I mean, they're still young. Talk about, you know, as you've gone through your journey. And I know you've written quite a bit about it in the book, but, but for our listeners, how do you see this next generation um, dealing with what we're going through? You know, I, I, fe- I have really mixed feelings about that. About I feel on the one hand, mm-hmm. like we're putting such an unfair burden on the next generation. And... Um, mm-hmm. You know, while we praise them and we say they're so wise and they're they're so sensitive and mature and smart, and they are, <laughs> but uh, you know, our generation hasn't been, and so it is a very unfair burden that we're putting on these kids. So, as a part of me, just feels angry about that. Um, but then I also. Um, yeah, they are they are super engaged, and not all of it is obviously coming from Elias and I uh, talking to them about things. They they're aware, they listen, they pay attention to what's going on around them. They talk with their friends, so um, they're quite well informed. And uh, you know, <laughs> just one little example is just that right after the election results. Um, as it was becoming clear, my older daughter said, okay, well, I think we should have a party in the park. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she made two different mm-hmm. kinds of cookies mm-hmm. and, you know, in a socially distanced, like masked sanitizer uh, flowing way, we were able to see some people outside in the park. And, um, and it was all oh. her idea. So, it, you know, they're, they're also really feeling um, they're feeling they have there's so much i think it's a lot to process and to and of course the pandemic year on top of it they've had to make many many adjustments uh in their daily life and how they you know both of the of my daughters are doing remote school so it's been a big change as well it's the mm-hmm. it's the political um it's the activism i mean they've been to a lot of protests they've they ask a lot of questions. Some of their questions are very hard to answer, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I'm really proud of the fact that they're they're engaged. They're paying attention. They have opinions. Um, they're not afraid to mm-hmm. to share their opinions. That's great. And it sounds like they might give you enough material <laughs> for another book, you know. <laughs> so, so actually, and, you know, I was thinking, that's another thing I was thinking as I was reading was that some of the people you've described as walking in it from time to time, I was fascinated. And, you know, of course, it's New York, so you're going to have some interesting people anyways. But, you know, is there, do you think there's another book that you might want to write? Because there's so much, I mean, I felt like there was so much you could just, you know, dive deeper and pull more threads, you know, and just, is is there another book you think you might want to write? You know, I definitely want to keep writing. I don't know if a next book will be anything like this one. Um, but mm-hmm. 
yeah, actually finding time and creating space and time to write has been one of my biggest challenges of 2020, <laughs> partly because of all those changes, you know, yep. trying to save the business, trying to educate, right. you know, make sure the kids are uh, taken care of in like this new schedule of ours where we're all home. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, just it's been it's been such a big shift and so many demands that um, the writing time is one that I I do have a um, I do have a writing group and I have friends that we have been trying to even if it's 45 minutes of writing trying to do that and hold each other accountable for it but yeah definitely I, I mean I don't have a, a clear answer or a vision of what that next book is but I am um, I am hoping to continue to write Great, good. I'm glad you said that. Good, because you know, once you get that, once you get going, you need to keep that going. So for sure, and I look forward to that. Um, and my last uh, two questions now. So one is, you know, what's next for Coffee House Resistance? It, it give, I know there's limited visibility. Everybody has limited visibility where the world is going and what's going to happen. But you know. Where, where do you see, just in the near term, what's next for Coffee House Resistance? I think there is a lot of um, local opportunity as well for activism and change. One of the things that has been the most satisfying mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, where the national situation has been so dire, um, local politics and local activism in New York has really shifted. And I think there are big opportunities um, for that. And, you know, any big, uh, big changes, usually they start at a state level or, a, you know, it's, it's usually things are tried in one place. So I think we do have an opportunity in New York for that. And I think Buni and the activism associated with this community will continue um, with that. And, but I think it's also been, um, it's also been a really, this watching the election outcomes and even, you know, where we are now with this sort of transition, uh, transition unlike uh, those in the past, it has been a really personally difficult <laughs> process. So um, mm -hmm. I think I'm, you know, I'm not there yet where I'm not say you know, I'm not really able to say what's next in terms of the activism outside of the local, um, because the there is some real unpacking that I think that I'm still thinking through about what this last election has meant for this country and for the future, and how how to move forward mm. uh, in a country that is so divided and where those divisions can feel very, very personal when you are an immigrant, when you're a, uh, a multiracial family. It, it, you know, it really hits home. So there's a lot of sort of just processing and thinking at the moment. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I think it, a lot of people are in that yeah. wait and watch mode, right? Because there's not that much... Uh, to do but I think we'll know a lot more in the coming few weeks right as the new administration starts to unveil what yeah and then the, do, the, the the other layer of 
the pandemic, um, I think has also made it hard for people to do long-term planning, right? It just seems so ridiculous yes. to make long-term mm -hmm. plans right now. So yeah. the, the horizon right. is just much closer in. And I find myself thinking about, you know, the next mm -hmm. two weeks, the next month, but not that much beyond mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah. 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 It's, I think, I just feel like, yeah, I think people are going to make plans make future plans very differently. And I think that's going to become a part of our daily lives even after the pandemic. It, it, it's going to be a new kind of normal. It's not going yeah. to be the old normal anymore, right? So, yeah. Um, so let me ask you my last question, although I know I could talk forever, but I think we've, we, we wanna keep this to a manageable time for listeners. But my last question is something that I ask everybody who comes on. And it's not the easiest one to answer because I'm making you choose your one favorite Desi book uh, and, to, and to tell us why it's your favorite. And it's usually tricky because nobody has just one favorite oh, book. Oh, I have me. one. <laughs> It's The Shadow okay. Lines All right, by Amitabh cool. Ghosh. I love that book. Oh, I I, okay. I read that book mm. and I don't know. I, I really, it was a formative book for me. I read it when I was quite young, but I, yeah, I love that book. <laughs> so t t tell us why. Give us one well, or two I reasons why it stayed with you. Very, sort of, it's going to sound very self-centered, but I think it's one of the first times I saw myself in a book because there's a character who um, if I'm, I might not be able to quote it exactly, but she's described as knowing the layout and where all the bathrooms are in Frankfurt airport. And I felt like that was just me. Like I knew, mm. I, I know airports. I had traveled a lot. I've lived in a lot of different countries yet, you know, had this Nepali family and upbringing, but also this kind of, in between this and uh mm. and he writes beautifully and of course since then he's written a lot um of mm. books that are you know so well known and acclaimed and especially around he's been such a voice around climate change also something that i respect and admire very much about him mm. Mm. you know it's interesting though I, I, and i love this book too um it's interesting that of all the guests that have been on this podcast, I think this might ah. be the book that gets mentioned the most. Yes, even my last guest, the, the episode that just aired, uh, we had Shabanga Pandey, who is the chief editor uh -huh. of Himal South Asian. And I believe this, this was his favorite book too. And then before that, you know, we had, we had Aruni Kashyap and it was his favorite. So I... It's it's um, I, I'm gonna have to reread this book just because all of you keep recommending it, you know. Um, it yeah, I'm gonna have to mention this that this book needs to be reread by everybody because so many people it's resonated with so many, right? So that's great. I love that. Um, okay. Actually, and I, I lied. So I have one last question for you. It's a fun one though, it, it, and that is I love so I love language. I'm a translator myself, and I loved how in your book. You know, some of the non-English words 
where whether it, you know it's Nepali or Ethiopian, you know, you mention some of these non-English words, you describe the etymology maybe sometimes. And I just I thought the richness and the texture there was just terrific. So I'm going to ask you just a fun question to leave us with, which is, what is your favorite non-English word? Oh Tell wow. That this one is hard. <laughs> well, but you do see you've got access to all these languages, right? So I thought well, that one would be interesting okay, to I'm ask you pick that. One that's so. in the book, which is an Amharic word, and mm. the word is endorada, and that mm. is a way people describe um, how they want their coffee. And the endorada coffee is the one that is just like mm. fresh. It's like squeezed just freshly squeezed like imagine if you were thinking about orange juice or making juice or something um but it's the coffee version mm -hmm. of that and it's like mm. super fresh and uh it's a word that uh also the sounds of it i really loved and um i i spent quite a bit of time trying to learn mm -hmm. amharic so uh that 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 was one of my words that i really loved <laughs> yes, and I remember reading that in the book, so I'm glad you mentioned that. That's great. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Serena. This was a, just a very enriching and lovely conversation for me and for our listeners, I'm sure. Uh, I really appreciate you making the time, and I wish you the coffee house and all of you, the community, the work that you do. I wish you all the very best. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for having do. me. In today's Desi Boost segment, we have Haider Shabazz. Haider studied history at Yale University and creative writing at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is currently doing a PhD in comparative literature at UCLA. He was awarded a Charles Pick Fellowship in 2016, and he is the translator of Mirza Atharbeg's Hassan's State of Affairs, which came out with HarperCollins India in 2019. His work has appeared in Asymptote, Words Without Borders, Brooklyn Rail, The Caravan, and LA Review of Books. He lives in Lahore, Pakistan, and recently he won the 2020 Jawad Memorial Prize for Urdu English Translation, for his translation of The Sea, a short story by Khalidah Hussain. Here's a bit about the book that Shabazz has translated. Mirza Atharbeg is an important contemporary Urdu writer who is known for his avant-garde writing on post-colonial themes. Hassan's State of Affairs, his first book to be translated into English, is a surreal ride through Pakistan. It follows an accountant, Hassan, and a group of filmmakers, Masquerade Productions, who are working on Pakistan's first surrealist film, titled This Film Cannot Be Made. As the film's production runs into hurdles, escalating from the comic to the horrific, the text itself explodes into multiple storylines, genres, and characters and bends language and form. And the result is an entirely new kind of novel, which sounds amazing. 
Now, please enjoy the three very interesting works that Haider Shabazz is boosting in this segment, and the links will be in the transcript. Hey everyone, my name is Heather Shahbaz and I'm excited to be on this podcast and share some of my favorite uh, recent writing with you. So at first I wanted to talk about some brilliant South Asian writers that are publishing in some of the larger literary markets like the US, UK and India uh, because there is a lot of work uh, by South Asian writers being published in, in those places and, and a lot of that work is absolutely amazing. I, I personally love it. And uh, I also publish in, in those venues myself um, a lot of the times. But I thought that uh, it would be interesting today to look at some local magazines from Lahore that are run by young students, activists, and organizers that generally have small audiences or circulation and that are focused on issues of race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, labor, climate, issues that are important to young people in Lahore, um, in Pakistan. And you know, magazines that uh, address those issues by by these writers and, and for these communities. And I think that uh, they produce work and models of publishing that are quite different from traditional American-style literary journals. Um, in the... And uh, which is not to say that traditional American style literary journals are bad, but I think it's just interesting to look at different models and, and what those models produce. Um, for example, all, all the publications that I talk about today uh, w- publish in multiple languages um, and, and they publish across different forms, some forms that are perhaps not even recognized um, in the bigger literary markets. Um, I, I think these people are um, are doing some amazing work and I think they're going to be uh, they're going to come to define what Pakistani literature means in the coming years um, and I think they will do this by creating their own structures in you know instead of completely relying on um, on the structures of larger literary markets that that pass themselves off as global even when they're not so to begin, I want to talk about Haris Gondal's manifesto titled A Short Manifesto for the Third World Writers. Haris originally published this manifesto with Syakalam and uh, now he publishes most of his work on the platform Medium. Syakalam was a magazine which was run by students, most of them women, uh, many of them queer and religious minorities. They published a few print issues that were quite provocative um, and then kind of disappeared. Uh, They still have an online presence, but don't publish as regularly. Um, And Harris's manifesto is written in the style of what you might imagine as a Dadaist or a visceral realist manifesto. And it is directly concerned with what it means to be a writer and even more so an English writer. In a place like Pakistan, 
and he imagines what it might mean to be a writer in in the global south and how we relate to these uh, power structures in literature that that uh, marginalize writing uh, from places like pakistan his writing is urgent it's brash it's a quick angry essay that leaves you perplexed provoked agitated but i think it sets out to do exactly those things um here is a small excerpt a short excerpt uh from from this essay i dreamed of rage filled pamphlets and woke up in a place of marketable writing i dreamed of commotion and woke up to witness compliance i dreamed of solidarity and woke up to betrayal i dreamed of underlined words and woke up to inertia i dreamed of a revolution and woke up with a seizure the second piece i want to talk about is very different from harris's manifesto it's a short story called ma puts oil in my hair by mariam navid about the intimate moment as the title tells us between a mother and a daughter uh, but also the insurmountable difference that exists between the mother who is friendly but also cautious about what to say and the young daughter who doesn't know how to talk about her relationships her desire her interest in boys with her mother the whole story is written beautifully it's written sparsely with precise details and a fluency in the dialogue that makes you want to keep reading but it's a short read it was published uh, on this blog and instagram page called wow mangoes that calls itself a local love club and publishes small tender pieces about all the different sorts of relationships in our lives here is the opening paragraph from the short story it's a mixture of nariyal and sarson ka tel luke warm because i like it that way she's no good though she's just scratching my scalp with her calloused fingers strands of my hair get caught in between the calluses every now and then unbothered she continues stroking back and forth in the same spot and that is how i end up with tiny spiders in my head every time i ask her for a head massage The last piece I want to talk about is an interview. It was published in Behanchara magazine in the June issue which was focused on Desi queerness. Behanchara which translates to sisterhood is an online space that publishes fiction, poetry, non-fiction, interviews, opinions, conversations that as they put it aim to provide a safe space for growth, education and support to women as they find their rhythm in life. This interview with Sara Sohail is an important discussion that focuses on queer organizing and queer communities of care in Lahore. Sara is an amazing writer, teacher and activist who has been building and sustaining queer communities with remarkable passion and care. She has also worked on issues of labor, climate, gender and is committed to an intersectional politics. The interview talks about ways of defining queerness, ways of sustaining queer communities and ways of building connections between different generations of queer people. Here is Sara responding to a question about how she defines queerness. So for me queerness is all of those people that don't fit into this matrix and have to find other ways of being. There are histories of people like me but they are hidden. 
ऐसे लोग तो हैं ही नहीं तो छुपा लो पीपल लाइक दिस जस्ट डोंट एग्जिस्ट लेस जस्ट हाइड दीज हिस्ट्रीज इफ दे आर टोल्ड दे आर ऑलवेज रेड एज बर्डनस और फेलियर्स इवन इफ देर लाइफ आर ऑर्डनरी और हैप्पी दे आर नॉट शेयर्ड बिकॉज दे डोंट फॉलो द अप्रूव्ड पाथ थैंक यू सो मच फॉर लिसनिंग टू मी एंड एंड फॉर गिविंग मी दिस टाइम टू टॉक अबाउट दीज वर्कस आई होप यू गिव दम अ रीड एंड आई होप यू एन्जॉय दम थैंक यू You've been listening to episode 20 of Thaisi Books. News and views about Thaisi literature from the world over. Episode 21 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Thaisi Books or Instagram at thaisi.books and tag the account if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellothaisibooks@gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a few days on the website daisybooks.co. Stay healthy, keep reading and write well. <laughs>